What is so unique about Einstein's brain? What's so unique about whatever brain, you know? Well, I, I think it's actually a, a reasonably uh, a good topic. Never gave permission for them to actually do the study of his brain. He had asked to be cremated. So the removal of his brain and the dissection of his brain and all that was... Well, uh, uh, it was a bold move, shall we say. And, yeah, they ripped off his brain. Yeah, in 1955, there there weren't really the levels of IRB oversight and things like yeah. that. And, you know, doctors were gods and they did what the freak they wanted. And yeah. uh, th this, is, uh, this is an image, not a terribly good image but an yeah. image of Einstein's brain. And, you know, unless you're kind of familiar with brains, this looks just like a pile of intestines or a stack yeah. of ropes or something, you know, what the hell are we looking at? How do you know this is different from something else? And there are uh, some things that are kind of expected. If you've seen enough brains, you can kind of see the differences that are present here. I wouldn't expect most people to have that kind of experience. So, you know, you, you show the picture and everybody goes, oh, ick, you know, <laughs> a human brain, <laughs> you know. Uh. If you know brains well, there's a few things that you can see just right in front of you that are not neurotypical. But, you know, everybody's brain is unique. They don't come color-coded. You don't have a neurosurgeon that can trust when they take a little piece off to look at a cortex that they know exactly what the cortex they're looking at is doing. So they actually have to test those things before they do surgery. Everybody's slightly different. And, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's kind of morphed into an idealized brain, the Montreal brain or something, but they're all different. Now, the things that stand out to me uh, here are see this knob we got some patreon love to dish out we are supported by listeners and businesses just like you like our gold supporter applied neuroscience incorporated the creators of neuroguide the premier eeg assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here Hey, check it out. Applied Neuroscience is having a workshop September 10th and 11th in Florida, Madura Beach, Florida. Hey, two ways you can participate. You can attend the workshop or you can do it remotely through TeamViewer or click on the link here, appliedneuroscience.com slash attend-ng-workshops. Hey, check it out. Dr. Thatcher's inviting everybody that attends to his house for a cookout. Sign up now. It's going to be a blast. If you have any questions, email QEEG at AppliedNeuroscience.com. Join us. Hey, thanks to our silver supporters, Mary Tracy's awesome QEEG training program at EEGStrategies.com. And Mind Media's Nexus EEG Amplifier. Welcome aboard, Erwin. They're at mindmedia.com. Yeah. This is the motor strip. And this is the basically the hand area. Is that the left uh, side? For, 
for this is the left left brain. Everybody sees the left brain, you know. <laughs> the right brain is underutilized or underappreciated yeah, somehow yeah. Uh, in, in graphics. But this knob is not neurotypical. Now, Einstein from early years was into violin. And there are those that hypothesize that this is essentially hypertrophy due to the the intense and, and extended years doing violin. It's an interesting theory. Might be true. Might be just a little bumpy anomaly. You know, this is... It, this borders on phrenology, you know, oh, a bump where the hand was. So, you know, the theories that come about from the morphological differences are interesting theories, but you've got to take them with a salt block, you know, and it, it, you're, you're from the Midwest, you know what a salt block is, you know, salt lick. This, this is not a dash of salt. You could get hurt dropping one of these things on your foot, you know? So we have to be almost laughing at our, at our gross conclusions here. The other thing is you'll notice that there's the operculum, the, the kind of cap over top of the insula. Where the hell is it? It, it isn't. It, uh, it, it's a missing piece. <laughs> it might account for the fact that his brain was actually not in grams, even close to being a normal size. It was about 1,250 grams. 1,400 is kind of the average. So, you know, maybe the missing operculum is is it. That That's where all the weight went. I don't know. Uh, Sylvian Fisher, kind of, sh- this is kind of one of those idealized brains. You notice that it doesn't look the same. But, you know, the, normally the Sylvian fissure wraps up in the temporal lobe. The motor strip comes down to it and, and it goes up into the parietal area. And, and it goes up fairly far. The auditory cortex being enfolded into the temporal parietal junction. So what the hell is this? It goes kaklunk. It's truncated instead of going the rest of the way. This excessive left parietal area is hypothesized to be the reason that he had excessively good sensory integration. Uh, he could he could integrate uh, images, and, and he thought in images, basically. Some yeah, people uh, just... Th- thought experiments, right? Yeah. And, and, and he thought in, in literally visual images... His thought experiments were things you could imagine. You could kind of see them, you know, like bending around a, a, a star. Ima- anyway, imagining he, you're on a train going past a clock at the speed yeah. of light. And yeah. You know, the, where the hell the rest of the Soviet fish go? You know, uh, so there, there's some there's some structural changes here. Uh, this is not neurotypical, neurotypical. But not everything was as easily seen. And again, no permission. The differences are in structure. We, I think, over, again, we kind of do a certain amount of uh, phrenology based on the bumps and, and so forth. And uh, I, I think to a certain extent, if, if this were looked at with modern neuroscience tools for connectivity and 
things like that. That that would be an interesting study. What we've got here is almost a laughable level of a study. You know, you, this is the kick the tires level of of mechanical testing of a car. Not there's no depth to this. This is all kind of gross. Now, again, smaller brain. It had a real thick corpus callosum, so an increased connectivity between the hemispheres. In fact, his corpus callosum was almost female-like. Females have big, well-developed corpus callosums. Males should have colossal envy. You know, we've got a, a dramatic difference, male to female, and some males are more female-like and some females are more male-like in their structures. But uh, he had a thick corpus callosum. And again, compared to the average, and you have to remember 1955, most of the studies were done on males. So male and female uh, to be in studies, you know. So he had, a again, a, an excessively connected compared to the average of the males that they had seen. So again, this may have been a female-like uh, corpus callosum, increased connectivity between hemispheres. They, again, the insula wasn't covered. The, uh, the cap, uh, the, the small cap over top of the insula just wasn't there. And and I don't see a whole bunch of people hypothesizing what kind of a deficit it caused him that, to be missing his operculum. You know, on, on the right side, for instance, the, the frontal lobe, the cap portion that sticks over top of, of it, the, that very lateral frontal area ends up being involved in inhibiting uh, expression and uh, impulses. On the left side, it has to do with distractibility. I don't know. <laughs> so are we saying he was a distractible, impulsive person? Eh, I don't think so. Oh, so, he was with the, with the ladies. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, that, like that's not common. You know, the left motor strip. Again, they had the knob that I showed in the, in the image. And, and again, that's the knob. And uh, you, you don't uh, usually see a big knob sticking up in the motor strip. So uh, uh, that that that's an anomaly. The left hippocampus, the hippocampus is a, it's part of the limbic system. It's a, attached to and involved with the amygdala, but it's more of a memory processor. And uh, the amygdala is more of an emotional processor. Although they're so tightly intertwined, historically, the stimulation studies and the ablation studies ended up giving symptoms out of the uh, other nuclear body, the, the separation of their function that took quite a bit of time. They're functionally intertwined. But the, the hippocampus is, again, largely a memory processor. And uh, his left hippocampus uh, is larger. And the nerve cells were disproportionately sized. They were large. So probably some uh, enhanced uh, memory. Uh, he, he did uh, report basically using visual imagery largely and uh, the, these areas, Sylvia and Fisher's uh, excessive parietal area being developed uh, probably assisted in some of that. But again, it'd be interesting if we had 
fMRI and you know, spec scan and yeah, the, the the more detailed studies. Uh, and unfortunately, his brain was uh, after it was imaged, it was cut up largely into about one centimeter squares, and some were sent around, but most of them were hauled around by the person who did the original dissection until the 1970s when he kind of donated it to university. At that point, it's been studied more. And one of the things that's been studied more was actually the, the detailed studies of the glia. You have to think back at the time of the original dissection, uh, glia weren't really appreciated in the way they are now. They were scaffolding that the nerves could hang on kind of helped with the structure of the brain and it provided some metabolic uh, support to the cells, but uh, they, they didn't have the appreciation that the, the glia literally could, could initiate and turn on and off neural networks. So uh, they were underappreciated. So uh, only more recently were pieces from a wide variety of locations sent and studied. And with the, the proper uh, stain, you can end up kind of counting the glial cells times the area that you're looking at. No matter where they looked, there was more glia than were seen in, in a cohort of people of basically the same age. And uh, you, you have to do that because uh, it seems that glia replicate as you age. Uh, who knows if that might correlate with the wisdom that you get with, uh, with, with age. But we basically saw that the glia was generally increased, but the, the level, the, how much of an increase wasn't really uh, dramatic, except for the left parietal area, uh, that area that had a cortex that wouldn't normally be seen, the end of the sylvian fissure that didn't exist at the end, the truncated sylvian fissure, uh, that location uh, had about triple uh, the, the glial density that normally is seen. Jay, so, if we could go back, if we could go back in time and we had all the, you know, none of this stuff came out to like, you know, 20 years later, but if we could have a QEEG, what, what would the colors look like on a map if we had <laughs> Einstein's brain? Cause I mean, we're just, you, you can only hypothesize. That's you right. Know? We're hypothesizing. That's right. This is so, like a, it's a clickbait episode. So, you know, no pride here. But what would it look like, you think? So he he didn't seem to exist in worry or fear. And I would hypothesize that he had frontal midline theta, which is uh, not seen in everybody, but it's the it's seen in in normal memory function for memory retrieval. And obviously having a good memory would have been a benefit, but you could see it in his personality style as a lack of fear or worry. And given the era that he lived in, <laughs> there was plenty of things to be uh, fearful of and worry about. Uh, well, smart, uh, smart enough to get out of Germany in the thirties before it really hit the fan. But uh, yeah, and you know, but he 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 was an extraordinarily bright guy, and so I would also hypothesize that he probably uh, had a very fast background uh, alpha rhythm peaking in a in a significantly faster range, twelve thirteen hertz. Not so fast that his over arousal would have driven him to drinking to 
to wind it down, the counterbalance to that very fast alpha is the frontal midline theta. Uh, if you don't have the frontal midline theta, having that much octane, you know, fast, fast alpha, not every engine can burn nitromethane without blowing up. Having the frontal midline theta kept uh, his brain from having over uh, activation, negative side effects of uh, anxiety and fear. And you know, that's quite often the case with very fast alpha. The reason I would suggest that fast alpha is that it's superior semantic and declarative memory function. And uh, slow alpha is poor uh, performance on semantic and declarative memory. And he obviously had a, an out, outstanding uh, ability to uh, pull facts out and and reorganize them and sort them around in ways that normally weren't done. So his association uh, cortex being extremely developed, basically, is not a surprise given kind of the skill set that he exhibited. We, we can only guess. I, I would uh, suggest that his uh, connectivity, because of the uh, colossal development, would probably be atypical. He, he may not have been normal. How, how normal is it to be an Einstein? You know. Yeah. Um, so uh, deviations like those that I mentioned, frontal midline theta being excessive compared to a database and fast alpha at 12, 13 being excessive compared to a database. You, you may end up seeing uh, his Z scores being non-normal, uh, not yeah. neurotypical, uh, but then who wants to be normal? You know? Yeah. So, so Jay, when you look up these abnormal brains, you, you know, more than I do, I'm just doing my, my Google searches and y you see that these brains it, it was more nurture than nature that something happened to them where they had an injury. Do you think he was born this way or do you think something happened to him as a kid to get that little knob there? What do you think happened? I, I don't know that the knob is anything that it, it seemed to impress some of the neuroscientists of that era, but you know, uh, that's it's freaking phrenology, you know, Oh, you developed this skill. So the area in the brain swells up. It's going to cause a bump on the head. <laughs> so um, nature, nurture, it's, it's always a combination of the two. You get opinions that are polar to one side or the other that are only outlier opinions. So his brain was not neurotypical. The lack of an operculum, probably uh, from the time of birth. The structure at the end of the Sylvian fissure being off, probably the structural, you know, it, it's a unique a condition, but it, it's it's probably structural from birth. It may have given him a unique ability, uh, which he ended up using. The, you know, the same person's uh, brain uh, put into a totally different environment may have had a, a totally different outcome. So uh, nothing quite like chaos theory. A small perturbation at the beginning can give you a, a dramatic difference in outcome. Now, now, Jay, in the history of neurofeedback, a lot of Fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of stuff that kicked it off was a lot of the bad things that went down in Germany. And he got out right before all that stuff happened. Who was what was going down in Germany before it really hit the fan that that one doctor was doing these human experiments and, and, and whatnot to help us get going with neurofeedback? Well, Berger was one of the people who, well, he's the one who, who published first about the EEG and the human but they'd already uh, seen uh, brain electrical activity in animals. It was just 
you know, there was somebody that was going to do it in human. And and Berger actually a reasonably good job, not just instantly publishing his observation. He tried to prove there was some artifact or anomaly or something. So it took him almost a decade to publish. And who 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 has this data laying around for a decade before they publish nowadays? You know, uh, I, I have an idea about a study, so I can apply for publication now. You know, you know he wasn't a, a nice guy. He was a Nazi, and and although. Uh, Niedermeyer and a whole bunch of others have tried to paper over uh, his history. Uh, R. Douglas Fields' book, The Electric Brain, does an honest job of looking at Berger. He did experiments like sticking thermometers into living people's brains. That You don't get a volunteer for that, you know. So <laughs> I think you can see uh, he, he wasn't anything other than a, a Nazi. He had in his diary that he was upset because there were Jews on the beach at his vacation resort. And um, he sat on a sterilization board he, even after he, he no longer had his position at Jenna. There have been people that tried to paper over the fact that he was a Nazi. Just face it, it was real. It wasn't the right thing to be. But, you know, again, somebody else would have found the, the, the uh, human EG almost immediately after his publication. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated, the creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, check it out. Applied Neuroscience is having a workshop September 10th and 11th in Florida, Madura Beach, Florida. Hey, two ways you can participate. You can attend the workshop, or you can do it remotely through TeamViewer, or click on the link here, appliedneuroscience.com slash attend-ng-workshops. Hey, check it out. Dr. Thatcher is inviting everybody that attends to his house for a cookout. Sign up now. It's going to be a blast. Woohoo! If you have any questions, email QEEG at AppliedNeuroscience.com. Join us. Adrian and Matthews in England, the, the group at Harvard with Gibbs and Gibbs and Lennox in Lennox's lab at Harvard. Mayo Clinic, uh, Dr. Yeager, Charlie Yeager, uh, MD, PhD. They all, in the very, very early 30s, uh, ended up with their own EEG devices. You had to build your own amp. Yeah, some of them were more well-considered than others. <laughs> Dr. Yeager built an, an amp that has a piezoelectric crystal with a pen glued on the top of it. The crystal would twist, and it would give you the, the pen deviations of the EEG. But the, it was a salt crystal, and if it got too damp, it would basically melt the crystal. You, you can use his amplifier unless it's humid, you know. So, uh, But the, the other amplifiers ended up well enough. People ended up having uh, tube amplifiers that worked. Tube amps were not that easy to make work, um, <laughs> but you could, you know. I uh, cut my teeth on the grass model one and model three. Those amplifiers were, well, <laughs> it wasn't the good old days. If you wanted to start working with a patient, a couple of hours before you wanted to start working with a patient, you would turn on the instrument. But before you turn it on, you take all the pens off the mounts and then you turn it on because the, the pens, if they crisscross and then snap apart, the, the tip of them has a little sapphire tip 
and then it'll, it'll shatter the tip so you ruin your pens. The, the amplifiers were not temperature stable for about an hour and a half or so. And at about an hour and a half, once you saw that the pen twisting the rot, the, the post that the pens would be on wasn't twisting back and forth a lot, uh, you would then remount the pens and uh, then you had to set the length of the pen and center it and then run calibrations and adjust the uh, preamps uh, amount of amplification. So you had to calibrate the instrument and, and you had to do that. That was a, another four, you know, 30, 45 minutes worth of time to get the pens mounted and everything calibrated right so that the patient could be hooked up and amplified and recorded. And you had to do cals before and after uh, recording because the every single channel has a slight drift during the recording. Uh, so, you know, the good old days weren't good old days. That, and, you know, walk into my lab uh, in, the, in that era and what kind of electrodes would you get? Needle electrodes. 21 needles stuck in your head, little centimeter long needles. And you wonder why uh, kids had to be sedated uh, in order to be recorded. And how much data do you, you really get from a, an unconscious sedated with drugs kid? You know, you could see some gross things, but the, yeah, it, it's no way to look at a functional assessment of somebody, you know, big epileptoform stuff, uh, gross asymmetries, slow focuses, those kind of things you can still see. But Jay, is it possible if, if Einstein were around, we had a cue on him, could you train somebody to think like Einstein or how close could you get? What, how, how would you, you know, that? there's a difference between state, which we can train how much alpha, how much theta, you know, all, all of those state things we can train. Content is a different matter. You know, you can have the same state and not have the same content, and it's not the same. It's it's important to be able to achieve the state if it fosters some similar function. But uh, the content would be how much you learned, what you what information you jammed in during your you know you know your your busy acquisition learning curve of life and. Different people have different things they focus on. So a genius brain pointed at uh, something productive and all that's fine. The same brain could be a farmer who does fabulous work on his farm. You really can't train somebody to be the same as. And I know there are people that claim to be able to train you to be like a Zen master. You know, you have a brain state of a, a Zen master. And they will train you to have the state of a Zen master that it doesn't make you a Zen master. It, uh, the, it, the content has, has to be acquired, not just the state. Is it the hippocampus, Jay? If you could record, if you could get like a, a solid state drive backup of your hippocampus? Because <laughs> Elon Musk might be listening. That's, that's where you want to have the USB plug put in. You know? The brain operates as a distributed network. You know, how, how many years did people look for the, the locus of memory? Where, where was memory? Was, was that a, like here or here? They chased it all over. They couldn't find it anywhere. But what they see is that it's actually everywhere. Holographic or holonomic was Carl Prebrum's word for it. And uh, a hologram, you know, holograms are actually interference patterns. And 
you can capture one on an image plate, a photographic plate. And uh, if you break the image that's on the photographic plate in two, you have two complete images. It's not half of an image and half of an image. It's the entire image at a slightly lower resolution. It, the, the entire image is contained in every single piece of the holographic plate at, at a lower, lower, lower resolution as you get smaller, smaller pieces, but you see the entire image. It, it's interesting, the uh, development of the idea of the holographic brain uh, ended up being such a, uh, a divergence from the neurophysiologists who were sticking needles into something to see it. You know, if you couldn't stick a needle in it, it wasn't real. And the surface EEG is definitely an epiphenomenon. It's not, it doesn't reflect any kind of reality, uh, according to them. And, and, and here, Prebrim is talking about uh, interference patterns and holographic or holonomic uh, function. He was so far ahead of his time, uh, he didn't actually get his career achievement, which he should have received in the 70s, uh, when he actually achieved most of his major breakthroughs. Um, until in you know after 2000, I actually ran into him at the uh, APA. I, I had a booth, you know, uh, my company. I was trying to show uh, the, the APA uh, folks, uh, EG, QEG, and neurophysiological assessments and all of that. Yeah, I was there. Cynthia Kirsten was an employee of, of Brain Science, and she was there helping with the booth. And at the end of the day, it's a long day standing up in the booth, yam, 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 yam. And, uh, you know, uh, she, she was shocked and she went up to her room and I, I, I thought, well, I'm hungry. So I, I walked over and there's a, a point in the lobby where you, you've got two restaurants in front of you, kind of a, a quick diner or uh, the, the, the restaurant was called Napa. It was in Orlando, but it was called Napa. And, you know, fine dining and wine and tablecloths and, you know, waiters that are, yeah, a towel over the arm kind of a waiter you know so and i'm thinking well you know good food or fast food good food or fast food now look over and i see white hair down to the shoulders and a, a little sweater uh, uh, over the shoulders i i recognize that's carl and i said carl and he turned around and said jay what are you doing here i said well, i got a booth what are you doing here oh i've got this career achievement award tomorrow and i said well can i take you to dinner and and he said, well, my wife is joining me. Well, I'll take you both to dinner. And I, I called Cynthia and said, Cynthia, Carl Prebram and, and Catherine Neville, who's a, a, a novelist, who's his wife, we're going to dinner at Napa. You know, come down and join us if you, if you want. Zoop, she was right down. <laughs> she, she popped in as fast as you can imagine. And we had a very nice dinner, uh, a, a lovely couple and wonderful discussions. And uh, I actually arm wrestled Carl for the dinner bill. Yeah, he's, he was 92, 93 years old. And Cynthia whips up her, her iPhone, snaps a picture of, uh, of Carl and I arm wrestling over the dinner bill. Hey. He damn near beat me. You know, I got a torn <laughs> rotator cuff and a, and a torn bicep on my right arm. And, but I'm making an excuse for a 90-something-year-old guy and I arm wrestling. But it, it took everything I had to, uh, to, to end up. Uh, and it hurt you know i it it, it wasn't this (laughs) he's a tough old bird i'd love Um, to have that picture for the show by the way uh um i've uh, probably got it later 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 later. 
Jay, while you're looking, we're, we're sort of in the frequency business, aren't we? And neurofeedback deals with the slower frequencies. And Einstein, light, the speed of light really changed everything in our world. As, as the frequencies pick up, doesn't that where we get into gamma and higher level thinking? And oh, here we go. <laughs> and and no, I can't drink alcohol, so all of these yeah. cocktails were somebody else's. So duly noted. Anyway, oh, you got a good grip there. That's a good, good. Like I said, it was I everything I had, everything I could do to to, to beat them. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, awesome. So so am I on track with that thinking that with the frequencies and we're talking about Einstein and we just recently did something on photobiomodulation, the, the neurofeedback is the slower frequencies and light is the faster frequencies and there's more to come in the learning and upper level thinking. Am I, am I on the right track, Jay? In fact, historically EG had upper limits and the amplifier's upper limit uh, for the database that was Roy John's database uh, in the 70s and 80s uh, developed the NX-Link uh, database, which is the basis for BrainDX now. And uh, that amplifier was uh, a Massachusetts amp, and it went up to basically just below 30 hertz, and it plummeted. Uh, at, at that point. And Roy John quit analyzing it at 25 hertz. That was the upper limit for database for beta. More modern amplifiers have gone up to standard medical amps, uh, which, you know, digitally G uh, in the, the 70s finally uh, gave full uh, range to make it a clinical amplifier. Uh, if you didn't have the full range, it was just a research amp. But the clinical amps went up to 70 hertz, just like uh, below 1 to 70 hertz, the medical range. But that's only up into the normal gamma at 40 hertz. And a gamma 2 at 80 to 100, ripples, which are faster than that, uh, up, up above 100, uh, 125, 150. But there are even faster frequencies. The brain makes very fast frequencies. Unless you actually look at them with an amplifier, you can't really talk about them because they're invisible to you. They're, they're not being recorded. Now, there are people that do record faster frequencies. And at this point, those uh, can be seen. Uh, you don't expect to see power because one over F, the faster the frequency, the smaller the voltage. So when you get up into the 150 hertz range, you can't expect to see 100 microvolts of, of power. Uh, you, you end up having very, very, very small power but at the same time, uh, there are techniques like wavelet analysis that are just looking for rhythmicity and uh, Hilbert transforms that are just looking for rhythmicity. So you can tune them to a specific frequency. And if there's a rhythm at that frequency, it'll tell you there's a synchronous wave going on. Gert Furcheller's work with wavelets ended up being used for event-related synchronization and desynchronization giant time frequency plots. For that kind of an analysis, you can go up to 200 hertz real easily. Uh, all you need is wavelets tuned to the frequency bands that you're interested in. That kind of an analysis is being done now. Uh, Mitsar uh, company has their database 
uh, that only goes up to 45 hertz. And the, the amp that it was collected on is a 201 amplifier, and that's the standard medical amp that goes to 70. So you can see the full EEG. Their 202 goes to 150 hertz. That amplifier actually allows you to see gamma 2 and ripples. Is, that, is amplify, that the highest you can go is gamma 2 and ripples? Or is there what, what do you think the fastest frequency is? There are frequencies in the kilohertz range that are observed from the head, but it's probably a chemical oscillation. You can have a chemical structure that orients two likely similarly charged particles towards each other, and they'll try to escape each other. So they oscillate to, to try and get away from each other. Uh, kind of like sticking the, the poles of a magnet together that are the same pole that, you know, the, the, yeah, this, yeah. They, they get kind of twitchy. If they don't want to get stuck together. So uh, there, there are oscillations that are probably neurochemical, but as far as the waves are concerned, the very low frequency waves are an area that needs to be studied more in depth. Uh, there, there's some uh, pretty good research in that area. Uh, Dr. Kropotkoff has, has done uh, research on the about 10 second, a decasecond wave, a 10 second long wave that goes a gold uh, wire stuck into the brain uh, for polarization. What, what kind of thinking is going on at that fast? Is that like the reptile functions where you have to react quickly? Like what's going on? The, the, the approximately 10 second long wave is considered an oxygenation wave. Think in terms of HRV, heart rate variability would have you breathing how many times a second? Six a minute, that's 10 seconds a piece. Uh, that kind of times in with the oxygenation cycle that, that's uh, observed. You're matching an, an innate rhythm of some sort. There are those rhythms, but they're also very much very slower rhythms uh, that, that aren't, that they're, they're not necessarily a wave that, that has to repeat. Uh, there's also uh, DC field potential levels. The, the glia that turn on and off neural networks, for instance, how do you turn on and off a network? Well, you, you potentiate it by changing the polarization that it sits next to. The glia can go electropositive with calcium channels and turn things off and electronegative with ATP and, and activate an area. So they can literally turn on and off neural networks and they can do so in a millisecond or so. That was a publication by Roy John in 2005. That's basically the, the glial control of the neural networks and neural properties. The, the very slow content ends up being something that is simply uh, potentiating something or depotentiating something. And that doesn't necessarily have a specific wave uh, that happens. That's just neural neural dynamics. Mm. Your networks normally turn on and off in a in a dynamic way. Uh, that's going to be seen as the very low frequency and, and upsweep the DC end of the spectra. When you look at the power spectra, you see that that rise up at the left hand side of the spectra. Well, that, that's that's basically the neo, the neocortical dynamics. And if you get a person who's locked in a default mode and doesn't have salience or executive function, uh, their networks aren't dynamic and you miss that low frequency end. The database will tell you there's a delta deficit. It's not delta, it's a slow particle potential aspect of the delta band, which has got a few things in it, including delta rhythm, uh, but also including slow particle potential.
potentials. And the slow particle potentials are a level. They're not really a rhythm. They can rise and fall and look like a rhythm. They're, they're not driven by a pacemaker. They're basically your mind uh, controlling your brain. Things like intention and attention and motivation. Those are all DC potentials. You can shift your intention around for motor intention. You can shift your attention, which is the intention to perceive around, we can observe that covert movement of your intention or intention by looking at the DC field potentials. So we can kind of spy on your uh, covert states uh, by looking at the EEG, seeing what's going on from outside. Okay, what do you need the gamma 2 and the ripples for and all the fast frequencies? What, what stuff that we don't even know could be out there, what do we need that for? Content. Got it. State and content. State and content. Uh, Deritter also points to gamma as uh, carrying uh, error messages for you as well. So A blue, a blue screen? <laughs> <laughs> Sight not found. Sight not found. <laughs> Bad gateway. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> yep. Jay, thank you so much for today's show. This is, this is, this is a good one. I was entertained. Thank you all for watching Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated, the creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, check it out. Applied Neuroscience is having a workshop September 10th and 11th in Florida, Madura Beach, Florida. Hey, two ways you can participate. You can attend the workshop or you can do it remotely through TeamViewer or click on the link here, appliedneuroscience.com slash attend-ng-workshops. Hey, check it out. Dr. Thatcher is inviting everybody that attends to his house for a cookout. Sign up now. It's going to be a blast. Woohoo! If you have any questions, email QEEG at AppliedNeuroscience.com. Join us. Hey, thanks to our silver supporters, Mary Tracy's awesome QEEG training program at EEGstrategies.com and MindMedia's Nexus EEG Amplifier. Welcome aboard, Erwin. They're at MindMedia.com. Three things our listeners can do to help us spread the word of neurofeedback. Number one, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Number two, give us a review on whatever platform you listen to. Five stars is appreciated, but Jay Gunkelman will accept four and a half. Hey, if you have the means, please support us on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. There are different levels in which you can support us, whether you're a mom or dad or a clinician. There's even an option where you can have your own Q&A with our own Jay Gunkelman. This support help, helps us improve the quality of our content. Hey, trying to get these video edits even better, even better. Again, we thank you all for watching. Cue the non-copyrighted music.